Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. I so enjoyed Mark's message a couple of weeks ago. And I love the fact that he introduced himself and his family. So I'm going to do the same, if you'll allow me the liberty. Uh, my name is Nick. Thank you, Mark. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm married to the wonderful Liesl. Uh, we have been married for 18 years, and to get together for about 22. And so we know each other very well. Um, but shortly after we were married, we thought we knew each other so well. But then Liesl said, I only knew the one personality. That's a joke. Sorry, she doesn't have a split personality. I apologize. Um, we, we, have the privilege of having, we have the privilege of having two children. Um, Amor came to us at 15 months old, and she's now 14. So we've had her for about 12 or 13 years. Um, and then Gabriel is nine, and he came to us naturally, biologically. Uh, both our children were, were an incredible blessing to us, in spite of the different ways they came to us. But we adore them, and we're very privileged to have them. Uh, we've been in this nation now for about seven months, a little over seven months, and we're here because we feel that God has a job for us to do here. So uh, I'd like to thank the leadership of the church here for giving me this opportunity to speak. Uh, I love God's word, and I love to be able to share it. So uh, uh, I trust that this uh, is meaningful for you, that it that instructs you, maybe that it builds you up in some way. Um, and if you make it to the end, I'll thank you too. Right, so, if I were to ask you, what does the Christian life look like? You might have some ideas, you might be able to shout out an answer or two, but you don't have to. But you might imagine, you might imagine some, some pious monks in a, in a uh, like a bare, musty castle with a bare, musty plate and a bare, musty hairstyle. You might imagine uh, a hypocrite who says one thing and does another. And uh, if you've been around in the church for a while, you might imagine Jesus, uh, this, this perfect being that, that uh, got it so right so that we can know the Father again. In the Bible, we have various snapshots of what the Christian life looks like. The Old Testament gives us the law in, in the form of the Ten Commandments, but also those first five books are, are a set of instructions that, that God gave to Israel to live well. You move along the big jump to the, the New Testament, and we have not only Jesus' example, but his teaching also. Um, obviously, his example was, was perfect, but his teaching is so incredible at the same time. He, uh, he, I think of the Sermon on the Mount, which is this beautiful manifesto uh, that, that Christians would do well to live by. Uh, and look, we could look at that, but today, I'd like us to look at the book of Romans, and in particular, Romans 12 which is actually called, depending on your translation, uh, Marks of a Christian. All right? So, this is another one of those examples. Romans is a, a letter to the, Roman, to the Christians in Rome at the time by the Apostle Paul. Have you heard of the Apostle Paul? I hope so. He's quite a famous guy. So it's written to these, this set of believers in, in, in Rome. And uh, there's good evidence that this, this set of believers was a, a, a mix of both uh, Jews and Gentiles. It was quite cosmopolitan. And, um, and it seems like, if you read through Acts, 
like much of the early church, they struggled with the extent to which they observed the law. Right? Having this mix of Jews and Gentiles caused some issues, and they were working through those. Now, the Apostle Paul was uniquely placed to be able to speak into that situation. On the one hand, he was, he was a, you might say, a gifted scholar. Um, as, a, as a young Jewish man, he was, he was um, what's the word? He was sought after. He was, he was acclaimed for, for how well he knew the scriptures. And in his later days, as one called by Christ himself to minister to the Gentiles. And it is clear through many of Paul's writings that he has, a, has great affection for both the Jews and the Gentiles, and he would see them reconciled and unified in their belief and practice. And this, hopefully, will set the tone for what Romans is. It's, it's speaking into the life of this church that had potential to be divided around many things, but Paul was wanting to bring it together as a unified body. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, um, we have these powerful contrasts. It's actually so beautifully written. But Romans does this great job of creating these contrasts, law and grace, flesh and spirit, disobedience and mercy. And in chapter 12, then pivots with Paul then going, well, now that you understand all of these things, how then should you live? Let's read what it says. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn, otherwise it'll be on the screen. But Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 say this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So like I said, Paul is built to this point now, saying, now what do you do? Having heard all of these things, I urge you to do this. Now that you understand all of the above, I want you to. What is he urging them to do? What is he urging us to do? To present ourselves to him, to God our Father, as a holy and pleasing offering, a spiritual offering. Paul is wanting us to cast off our flesh, the sinful nature, toss it aside, and to live in the spirit. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lovely, lovely verses, eh? I love that stuff. What Paul is saying is, don't be taken by the world any longer. Rather, allow yourself to be transformed into something completely new. Jesus came to make us new creatures. Not something bound by the flesh but someone free to live according to the flesh. I mean, sorry, according to the spirit. Whoa. <laughs> that could have ended badly. In Christ, we aren't slaves anymore. Because that's the reality of sin. We think we love sin. Eh? But actually, it's, we're enslaved to that. Sin will hold us there and keep us there as long as it'll have us. But we have a new life in the spirit. So what does this transformed life look like? Before we get into it, I want, to, I want to mention something that I feel is very important. In Romans 12 now, after, from verse 3 onwards, we see this, this list of attributes or characteristics, right? And um, we could say to ourselves, okay, now I've got this list, now these are the things that I must do. 
right? But what do we do when we do that? We create another law. And if we do that, we're in danger of doing the next thing. And that we, we come into a place where we can think that we attain righteousness for ourselves by doing the things. I've actioned these, I've done these things, and so I'm righteous. When actually we are utterly beholden to Christ. Christ is the one that has imputed his righteousness to us. And so, what does that mean? One thing the Lord does is places a requirement on us to do and not to be. Someone once said, the law is like a muzzle on a dog. It might stop the dog from biting, but it will never change the nature of that dog. God doesn't want to muzzle us. He wants to transform us. A muzzle covers over external behavior. Transformation happens from the inside out. So what we want really is transformed hearts, and from that place our actions match up with that, right? Listen to what 2 Corinthians says. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, that not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Listen to this. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Living your life according to the letter brings death. We need to live in the Spirit, transformed by Christ. Now don't be mistaken, these things don't come without effort. Okay? We must act on our faith. If we believe these things, we must act. We, we must strive to live a pleasing life to the Father. Living God's way is not easy. Paul called it a sacrifice for a reason. Because it costs us something, Right? But as you walk in the Spirit, God will transform you from glory to glory, like it says in the Scriptures. Slowly but surely, we seek to become more and more like Jesus. Right, so with that said, we'll continue our passage. So I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter of Romans 12, and then we'll, we'll dig in a little bit. Right, from verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, or to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members excuse me, do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you, persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, said the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning, coal, heap, sorry, heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A moment, please. So, what I've done here is I've grouped some, I can't go through all of these, so I've tried to group them into five different groupings, and we'll go through them one at a time. Is that okay? Cool, you're with me? Cool. I'm going to thank you, I promise. Okay, five things that Romans 12 encourages us to do. Number one, be honest and humble. Paul encourages the Romans here to be honest and humble, to be sober in their judgment of themselves. And there are two sides to this. The first one is pretty, pretty obvious, the other one not so. But the first one is, do not be proud or haughty. Sorry, I couldn't quite think of that second word. Do not be proud or haughty. And I think we can all agree that prideful or haughty people are not the nicest. And so we like that one. It's easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't be proud. The second part of this is not so easy or not so obvious. Paul tells us that while we consider ourselves a sober judgment, that God has apportioned faith to each of us. All right? And if you know your Bible, it also says to us somewhere else that faith is meant to lead us to good works. Well done. And so on the one hand, we're not to be prideful, glorying in what we can do. On the other, we're not to hide behind a rock and say, oh, I can't do that. People would notice like actually God has given us stuff to do with the faith to back it up, right? Not shying away from the things that God has given us to do. We can stand unashamed and assured of what God has, that God has called us. He's got a job for each of us. Speaking about that, number two, we need to be integrated and functioning. Paul talks here about the image of the body, that we're part of this body, all right? We know what human bodies are like, right? Each part has something to do. I'm looking at you, appendix. No part of the human body is without purpose. So it is with his church. You are members of his body, integrated by his redeeming work. So when he gave his life up for you, and you called out to him and said, Jesus, I need you, immediately you became part of his church, part of that body. Maybe you're an elbow or an ear or something. Ears are good because they keep this thing on my face. Once you understand that, once you understand that you're integrated, that you're a part of this, then you can begin to function, right? And that means finding that thing, all those things that God has given you to do, right? There are many ways that we can serve in the kingdom of God broadly. I believe, though, that the primary way that we need to outwork our calling is within the local church. And so if you consider Coast to be your local church, 
then get involved. If you can smile friendly, in a friendly way, offer to stand by the door and welcome people in. If you can hold a jug and tilt it in the direction of a cup, then offer to serve tea or coffee. If you love children, offer to help a kid's ministry. If you can't think of anything, then I'm sure the leaders would love to hear from you, and they will help you get involved. Okay. Number three, stand with one another. I don't mean literally. Like we do that when you sing, but also like through every circumstance of life. Like this is a community, right? Don't forget your dark times when other people are struggling. Rejoice when others are blessed. Pray for one another. Contribute to the needs of people when they arise. Liesl and I struggled for about six or seven years to fall pregnant. Um, and those years taught us many good lessons. Uh, the first one was this. Or let's first say that when we were trying, six or seven, you know, yeah, six or seven years worth of months, is that English? Six or seven years worth of months is, is really hard. That monthly reminder is a tough thing. Um, and so during all that time, we had a large group of friends at the time. We've lost them all. But not because of this, but other things. <laughs> Sorry. We had a big group of friends, and while we were trying to fall pregnant, they were just getting it right. And it was really hard. But we learned that we couldn't begrudge them their joy, their rejoicing at falling pregnant and having kids. Right? The second thing we learned is how much we appreciated it, and this is going to sound a bit morbid, I think, but how much we appreciated it when people grieved with us. Because our hurts are real. I don't just go away because you sing a praise song. Like, hurts or hurts. Many of those same friends who were falling pregnant were in the trenches with us, fighting that battle. And we so appreciated that. I'm not talking about morbid communal depression. I'm talking about empathizing, being there in those tough moments, carrying them through the tough moments. My mom passed shortly after my son was born, or shortly before, shortly before my son was born. It's devastating for me that she didn't get to meet him, but she never stopped praying for us. It's about carrying someone's pain and being moved by it. Have you ever realized that Jesus wept for Lazarus' friends and families, knowing he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? He was moved by human emotion, like the hardship. And then one day, Everybody got to rejoice with us. When Liesl delivered Gabriel, she had to have a C-section. If this is gross, I'm sorry. I have to share it, though. <laughs> you know what a C-section is? Do you call it something different, yeah? Okay. So because, because Lee had some tricky issues with her uterus, her doctor had to inspect it while her tummy was open. And so I was in the room. I was about a meter away from him. And he had Liesl's uterus in his hands. And he said this. I heard it with my own ears. This womb should never have borne a child. Miracle boy. This womb should never have borne a child. Praise God, eh? And so all those people that carried that load with us then got to rejoice with us. How wonderful is that? Number four, be unified. Honestly, unity in the body of Christ is a non-negotiable. And I'm saying that strongly, but it's true. 
Jesus told us, a house divided against itself will fall. That doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but it does mean that we still have to love and honor everybody else. I was part of a big leadership team in our, in our previous church, 30 or so pastoral couples, 30. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of opinions. But by the grace of God, one thing we were able to get right was we made sure our relationships worked. We could disagree and have robust debates on all kinds of things, but we always preferred or favored relationships. It's easy, actually, to divide and make war, to cause strife, but peace is the better way. When, when Peter struck the one guy that came to arrest Jesus and cut off his ear, what was Jesus' response? Healing. He healed the ear. Could that be our testimony? Could we bring healing when we are persecuted and vilified and opposed? Do we prefer ideas and opinions over people? Do we hold fast even to that pet theological idea at the expense of our relationships? God's word is important and we need to uphold it. But if we're doing that at the expense of our relationships, I think we, there's something not right there. We've got to figure that out. Strong, mature relationships can carry difference and disagreement while extending love and grace. Number five, focus on the good. The passage ends with this line, overcome evil with good. Sometimes we, in our lives we focus so much on overcoming evil. We just, we just want to stop sinning. I, just, I don't want to do that anymore. And that sometimes comes at the expense of doing the good things. We can be so focused on what we shouldn't do that we neglect what we should do. A guy called Dudley Daniel said this, what we are saved into is more important than what you are saved out of. I don't think God wants us, I think, I think we need to be wary and aware of our sin, but I don't think God wants us fussing on these little things when, when there's so much he wants us to walk into, so much, so much to operate in and enjoy and, and love. Yes, we need, to, we need to make sure our stuff's tied down, like, we're not, you know, we're not stuck in those places. But cast your gaze up. Look ahead. Look at the abundance that Christ has laid before you. The reality is now we serve a new master. And that's a wonderful, wonderful truth. You don't have to listen to that voice anymore. You're no longer a slave to your sin. You can walk free. And the abundant life that Christ has given you, has bought for you. Overcome evil with good. Step out. Do what Christ has called you to do and instructed you to do from his word. Here's a nice summary, I thought. Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 3. I therefore, this is Paul again, by the way, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How wonderful is that, eh? Work, work, walk 